much for being patient with us. Um, we wanted to wait a little bit before we started, uh, so some of the people delayed by the rain could get here. Um, I'm Lawrence Weschler, and I'm going to be moderating this evening's panel. Uh, before I start, I just want to say that both Edward Said and uh, Joy Harjo, in the last were fully expecting to be here this evening, and in the last 24 hours, uh, separate things developed that they weren't able to come. I spoke with them both uh, a few hours ago. They both apologized and they uh, wanted to say how, how, uh, they, how interested they were in this topic. They wish they'd been here, but they apologized to you and we apologized to you. Having said that, uh, on extremely short notice, the hero of the evening uh, is David Reef, who uh, has uh, joined us uh, in just the last couple hours. So we, we thank him especially. Um, at some point during the evening, uh, this camera will have lights on uh, for about 15 minutes altogether. The uh, program Rights and Wrongs is, is filming this uh, for their uh, PBS series. Um, and outside of that, I guess uh, we'll just begin. Um, the, the subject, Is Writing Enough, is... Uh, is the kind of wave that breaks in a lot of different directions and can be uh, surfed all sorts of different ways. I will just uh, perhaps begin by uh, raising some of the uh, ways in which I was thinking of it over the last few days uh, and then I'll separately introduce the panelists and they will each speak. Uh, parenthetically, we, we expect that we will each speak for between five and seven minutes then we will speak among ourselves, and then we will open it to, to the public, uh, to all of you. Um, maybe I'll start with a story. Uh, my grandfather was a composer in Weimar, Germany. His name was Ernst Toch. And when he uh, had it r realized quite early on that it was time to be leaving in 1933, uh, he arranged a special, uh, he, he was able to get out himself uh, by way of a musicological conference in, in Florence and then he made his way to Paris and then he sent a telegram to his wife, my grandmother, uh, letting her know that it was all clear and that she and, my, and their daughter, my mother, should, should come and join him there in Paris. And the all clear telegram, the code, was, I have my pencil as if that was all he was going to need. Um, one of the ways in which I, th I hope we'll be able to explore some of the issues today is precisely, it has, has, has a good deal to do with this question of exile and the writer as exile, all writers as exile in a certain sense, but particularly exiled writers, and whether uh, having your pencil is all you need. I'm also reminded of that whole community, for example, in, in uh, Southern California, the Germans, uh, the emigres during the war, when, when they constituted themselves in effect as uh, uh, Thomas Mann is said to have said that where, that where he was is where Germany was. And, you know, uh, it didn't really, uh, the true Germany was, was alive there and, and it was alive in a world of writing. Uh, but that was a problematic position and perhaps we'll get into some of that. Obviously, um, a second way of getting into it has to do with this inherent paradox of the writerly vocation, which is that writers uh, 
whether they're, they're nonfiction writers, reporters, or, or novelists, or poets, and so forth, are often dealing with some of the most radioactive material there is. They are dealing with issues of enormous import uh, in the world. They are, they are by themselves in their rooms uh, dealing with world-shaking events, dealing, for example, arguably recently with Bosnia or with Rwanda or something like that. And there is this contradiction uh, that you feel as a writer quite often uh, that makes itself felt almost as a fidgetiness. Like uh, here you are in a certain sense thinking about these things more than most people do or by vocationally you're being, uh, you're doing that and yet in a way you are more removed from the world um, than most people are as, as you're doing it. And that creates kinds of conflicts and there are both in, our, in ourselves and in our relationship with the world. And, and so that is another way of talking about is writing enough? Is uh, and, and I mean, I myself in recent months and, and, you know, thinking about Bosnia, I mean, I just, you know, you sit there, you write and, and it doesn't seem enough at some level, but it's not clear what the alternative would be. And so there is this draw to a kind of activism that, that, uh, that can be uh, exalted, but also kind of ludicrous. So that's something we can talk about. Uh, under totalitarian conditions, uh, uh, for example, in, in uh, Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union for many years, there was literally the situation of people who were writing for the drawer. Writing was virtually all. I mean, they, it, it wasn't even a situation in, in the darkest Stalinist period. It wasn't even a situation of, of, of writing and copying and passing around copies. There, there, it was literally you wrote and that's all you did and you put it in the drawer and you hoped at some point it'd come out, it could come out. Um, was writing enough. Um, and then most recently, I think um, writers, and I think this is an issue that, that perplexes us in Penn in particular, um, are faced with situations like Bosnia, uh, like Algeria, um, or in the name, in a, to summarize this whole issue in the name of a person, like Salman Rushdie's situation where the very uh, premise of kind of a, a, a tolerant, um, uh, polyphonic culture, a culture that allows for the, vo the multiple voices of novels, of poems, and so forth and so on, is itself under attack. And uh, I mean, when faced with, with, uh, with fundamentalist or ethnic cleansing sorts of, of challenges, writing seems particularly uh, vulnerable. And writers of all people are, are feel like they're uh, drawn into this. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all these issues. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, one of the way, ways to think about this is how is this any different than any other vocation? I mean, is, is uh, is uh, being a banker enough? Is is uh, being a uh, teacher enough? Is being I mean, how 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 are these sorts of issues more complex, or or, or how are they different anyway for writers than for other people? So I hope we'll deal with some of that as well. So th with, th with those are just some of the ways that that I approach it. But but I'm hoping our panelists will have other ways, and and that you will share your ideas with us as well.
Um, so without uh, anything more from me, I think I'll begin by, by introducing Brayton Breitenbach. Um, I expect many of you already know his work. He is uh, one of the great, uh, <laughs> he's, he is one of those South African writers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, has, I expect he'll tell us a little bit himself, but, but he can talk to us in part. He has written in the Afrikaans language in exile, largely, uh, since 1960 in, in Paris. Um, so he can talk to us about, about that sort of question of whether writing is enough, but also in the uh, early 70s, he was himself came to feel and has written quite beautifully on this, uh, that writing was enough, that some kind of deeper engagement was required. He went back to South Africa, uh, was arrested, spent seven and a half years in prison, um, uh, and then emerged and continued uh, in his fight with the apartheid regime. Um, he is the author most recently of a book called Return to Paradise, which is the third book of a trilogy. Uh, the first book was A Season in Paradise, recounting a trip he took before he was arrested. Uh, the second book, The True Confessions of Albino Terrorists, dealt with his arrest and his time in prison and now return to paradise that all three will be reissued later this year in a paperback edition. Uh, I expect uh, many of you are familiar with the latter too, but the first one's been pretty hard to get and it's a wonderful book and I urge you to get that. He's a poet, he's a painter, uh, and, uh, and I will refrain from any adjectives. Right. Thank you, Rain. Well, we've been asked, I think, tonight to keep the proceedings as informal as possible, so I'm sure the other panelists here haven't prepared either very structured written contributions. I certainly have not, because I think the whole pleasure and the purpose of, of uh, such an event as we're having here tonight is the chance to exchange rather freely amongst ourselves and with you here in the audience uh, some of the ideas around this central question as it's been put. Um, I, but I did jot down a few notes and I'd like to refer to them briefly. But they start off with, and they may, may not be directly related to the subject, but still just for the fun of it or just for the hell of it, they start off with two quotations. One is something I came across in the Tao by Lao Tse where he says beautiful words are not true true words are not beautiful I don't quite know what to make of it myself but still it's perhaps a good starting point second one was when I heard that David Reef was going to be with us tonight and particularly since he broke a leg to come here uh, I thought I'd like to convey to him uh, an old Arab adage that says it's better to be a stranger everywhere and to disguise yourself as one even in the land of your birth. Most societies have a culture of hospitality and people don't involve you in their local quarrels. You also have the benefit of the doubt even if you should break the laws of the country you find yourself in. So, is writing enough? 
Well, put that way, the question, the question is, of course, incomplete. Enough for whom, and enough, and enough for what purpose? There's an old truism, for example, that the hungry cannot eat words. There's perhaps also a lingering conception that the world could be a better place if only there was more writing. This may well hold in a certain superficial sense. One assumes that people who spend their days writing won't have time to go and shoot at their neighbors. But does it make necessarily for a better society? We all know about civilizations with legions of scribblers chewing the cud in dark and dusty rabbit hatches. And these civilizations turned out very often to be blind, feudal, repressive societies. To put it rather pompously, the activity of writing doesn't necessarily partake of enlightenment. Let's look a little bit closer at the problem. One can start with, say, poetry as a vertical quest, as existential, even as a metaphysical pursuit. A Swiss hermit who lives in the south of France, and I won't mention his name now because I'm just going to use some of his images, quoting them out of context. Anyway, he proposes the notion of poetry as a way of putting essential questions to draw from the very limits of feeling or understanding or penetration a song, leaning, as it were, upon the abyss to steady oneself, not to cross over, because that will breach the gap and probably destroy the sense of danger so important to your vocation or to your necessity to continue writing. It's rather a way of speaking of the world which will not be an explanation thereof. To do that, once more, if one were trying to try and explain the world, would be fixing and destroying it, like stopping its rotation. No, it is rather a speaking which shows this world as gorged with a refusal to give, to deliver answers, perhaps to speak for itself a world which is alive because impenetrable, marvelous because so terrible. This, of course, already suggests, and I'm letting my thoughts go a little bit walkabout here, that the word, the need for the word, is peculiarly human. It can be said, it can perhaps be argued, to be a substitute for direct experience. It's like when you can't see something for what it is because the mind gets in the way. Now, one may argue that from the word, one may argue that from the word go, we set out on an endless journey. In other words, when we started writing, we opened up an abyss between ourselves and that total recognition which is finitude. We created eternity, always just out of reach, and so we write. We write towards that unreachable eternity. It takes time to write the mirror with which we hope to decipher eternity, like Medusa's head. In fact, it takes an eternity. We thus continue, and writing is not enough, because it is a need, a magic, a form of initiation and exorcism, a means of not knowing. 
this atavistic need continues even today despite the parasitical interference of for instance electronic media one never gets to the end of it I had a friend who is deceased now in South Africa who was a great translator of the works of Shakespeare I remember once we translated one of Shakespeare's plays and when we looked at it carefully we saw that it was something like a one quarter longer than the original text and his explanation was that he liked the character so much he just couldn't bear separating himself from it. he just continued writing the need could not be stenched, staunched it's never sufficient the writing to cover the void to assuage the need to write like a chronic skin disease it keeps on returning erupting asking to be scratched but as I tried to say just now it doesn't describe reality it is of itself a reality like the finger pointing at the moon or the light beam falling on the, on the object and we probably fool ourselves when we think we can create or modify or describe directly or thus transcribe an outside a non-verbal reality as my friend Ren Weschler here has written and I quote realism is a humiliation for the artist it's never enough writing because it doesn't fill the absence it doesn't quench or quench the urge for burnout for confrontation with the real it's a solution therefore to forfeit writing for some other form of direct action if we think of the examples of say somebody like Kafka reporting from the depths from the anguished heart of his mind reporting already upon the horrors of events to come throwing a shadow over his life or if you think of somebody like Dostoevsky in his notes from the underground talking of the irrational this tug of the irrational the tug of madness the tug of depravity this need to get away from civilization from the civilization of Europe with the two examples I've just mentioned would it have made a difference to the realities of their countries had they been, been active activists and not writers of course the execution or the exaltation rather of total freedom of free thinking is a temptation in itself there's perhaps the area of free thinking which is awesome which has an awesome beauty and terror of its own again Dostoevsky could think murder and abjection Kafka could think parasite and incest and extinction Genet could think humiliation Arthur could think madness so dizzyingly close to them that there was only the distance that the distance between thought and action was about as thick as a sheet of writing paper and to conclude and of course we will come back to this I think during our discussion this evening there are times when the act of writing or the craft of being a writer is not enough whether one then passes to a deeper commitment or a more shallow commitment whether this is a form of escape running away from the 
impossibility to come to grips with the horror in your writing and therefore finding an easy way out or whether it's a more noble way of pursuing the same objectives I'm not sure but certainly these times arrive and I think there's no way there's no reason why if they do arise the writer should be excused from taking his civic or civilian responsibilities the terror of civil war can probably not be described barbarism probably cannot be inflected by writing in fact one may even argue that at times we are satisfying a morbid curiosity by writing about these events by writing about these things we may as writers be involved in giving a texture of decency to that which is profoundly indecent one could even go a bit further and ask oneself whether there should not be an argument made for taboo for not writing about certain things I'm putting this as a question I don't necessarily have an answer and I hope that during a period of interaction we perhaps can, re can return to this but it's certainly true that there are moments when writing or communication can be used and misused and abused by political powers for their own purposes Nuruddin Farah recently wrote a very interesting paper that I happen to see, I don't know if it's been published about the uses made in the Somali war by the media the selective use the fact that it was probably to start with a media war that it was probably timed to come at the right time for the major television channels and then the uses that were made by the Somalis themselves of the horrible pictures of corpses being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu and then of course the fact which is rather ironical that once Idit won the war once again against mighty America there was very little media coverage to show the retreat of the American troops but that's just by the way so to put it in context and it's rather a flat way of getting out of my preliminary opening remarks of course all of this I think should be seen against the background of democracy or rather what we hope democracy could possibly be a French philosopher Touraine has said recently that and that comes to me quite close to the function of writing he says the space of democracy is not calm and reasonable it is driven by tensions and conflicts by mobilizations and internal struggles and infighting because it's constantly threatened by one or another of the powers that may be extraneous to it he says the opposition he goes a little bit further the opposition between republican democracy rooted in citizenship and equality and pluralist democracy based upon cultural diversity and freedom cannot be bypassed or resolved is writing enough is it enough to write with democratic intentions to bypass your cultural restrictions or is writing also ought it also to be a way of carrying forward and ennobling as it were the deeper aspirations of your own cultural group and how then do you reconcile that with the first aim he says only the subject can integrate identity and techniques in making himself an actor capable of modifying his environment 
and of making of his life experiences the proofs of his freedom. And this actor, he says, will be defined by three characteristics, the resistance to domination, the love of self, the recognition or the knowing of others. He defines and grasps himself only in his struggle against the logic of the market or technical apparatuses. He is more deeply free and liberation than knowledge. Everything which strengthens the individual and collective subject contributes directly towards maintaining and vivifying democracy. But that ideally, I think, if we think of the writer as a citizen, as a responsible citizen, ideally that would be one of his functions. And to return then to basics, is writing, the freedom to write enough? I think it depends to some extent in the environment you find yourself in. It depends upon the circumstances. It depends on the time in history. I wouldn't want to know, I wouldn't want to think or want to even imagine what it must mean for you here in America where on very short notice I would say that some <coughs> of the contours and the, and the restrictions that you have to deal with are probably would probably be considered in the rest of the world parlor or society games. The problems of political correctness or religious sensibilities or patriotic prattle or the need, the demand that's made upon the writers to be provocative. These are quite different problems. I'm not suggesting they're less important, but they certainly are perhaps a little bit less urgent than it would be today to be a Yugoslav writer or a Somali writer or that it's been to be a South African writer and may again become to be a South African writer. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. <coughs> Tatiana Tolstoya um, has, uh, is, was born in Moscow. In Leningrad. In Leningrad, excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, and lives uh, in Moscow. Uh, and now lives, and now, and now, and now. <laughs> Wait, I'm supposed to be in the Russian Russian. I know it's difficult for you, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. But anyway, and has become known to American readers in the last several years with her two remarkable collections of stories uh, uh, on the Golden Pond and Sleepwalker in a Fog. Uh, she uh, was publishing. Uh, has been publishing in the Soviet Union uh, in the last days of the Soviet Union. She has uh, more recently been coming fairly regularly to the United States, was at Princeton, is going to be at Skidmore, but also goes back regularly uh, to Russia. Most recently, uh, her most recent trip uh, resulted in a piece in the New Republic a few weeks ago, which, which I commend to all of you. Anyway, uh, Tatiana Tolstoy. Okay. Um. In th there is a Russian writer, Andrei Sinyavsky. He, right now, at this very moment, he's in Eugene, Oregon, teaching for a while. Uh, in mid-50s, he was a professor of Russian literature and a very knowledgeable professor, and he was quite well established, everything was fine. But he didn't like, as many didn't like, the very fact that the state or just something in the state, the spirit of the state, of the totalitarian state, and that's always was a totalitarian state in before the revolution, 
uh, it somehow um, tries to regulate uh, whatever you put on paper and whatever you think. Because uh, the most dangerous thing for any totalitarian regime is your freedom, whether it's the freedom of thought or freedom of writing or publishing or whatever. And uh, he didn't like it. And uh, he decided to become an unknown writer, to write uh, under a pseudonym, and to write just whatever, but whatever he likes, but something that would uh, prove to himself and to whoever cares that if one wants to be free, one is free. He knew that he will be eventually arrested for that. So it happened. Uh, he managed to stay invisible to the regime for about five or six years, I don't remember exactly, but uh, it became worse and worse, and uh, he, yeah, his manuscripts were taken to the West by some uh, well-wishers, published somewhere in France, and um, then they managed the way to come back in Russia in form of books. Anyway, he was arrested, he was tried, and he was sentenced to seven years of hard labor camps. There was no um, essence in what they tried to accuse him of. There was just nothing, because these stories, they, they were sort of, they had nothing to do with any politics or anything at all. They were just written because he wanted to write them. And they were published abroad because he wanted it this way. So that was actually the main reason for um, punishing him. And he knew very well that it will happen, so it did. Uh, he spent five years in these camps, then he was released, and then he emigrated to France, where he actually lives now, and where he teaches in Srebrenica. Anyway, while he spent his time, and he thought that he would die in this hard labor camp, uh, he saw many people and talked to many people. And uh, as a professor of literature, uh, he was interested in how these simple people whom he saw in the prisoners' camp, and many were just thieves, burglars, whatever, uh, how these people react to literature, whether literature ever reached any one of these people, whether they reacted somehow to literature, and maybe he thought as, you know, an intellectual and a person very mm, detached from what we call real life, uh, whether uh, a good book may help someone to become better. And he asked one of the thieves um, whether he read books at all and how did it affect him. And that man said, yeah, when I was young, I once read a book, um, a short story. And this was the story of a Russian writer, Gorky, and the story was a quite a romantic story. The, the message of this story, the idea of this story was to uh, improve someone's self-esteem, to make someone feel more, um, well, I don't know, self-reassured, to strengthen oneself and so on. That was you know, a romantic message. And this man, it was about the first text he ever read, this man read it and he said, wow, and he really became stronger and he felt like going outside and robbing someone, and he did, <laughs> and that was his first robbery. So it started. He robbed someone of his watch. So it, it did improve his self-esteem. <laughs> he got the nerve to do something, you know, real, a macho thing. Well, so eventually he ended in this hardly but came together with this intellectual who was naive enough to think that people are basically good. You just give them a better book and they'll be even better. <laughs> so it worked this way. 
Um, so, you know, art is a strange thing. <laughs> you know, my point is that art is strange, and people are strange, basically. And um, <laughs> you never know what happens to them when they contact art somehow. It's like uh, electric wire, whatever. Some people may become some kind of mediums and read thoughts, and some are just dead, cold dead. You don't know what happens. Um, so when we write, and when we try to do something, oh, we have lots of expectations, aspirations, and we think, yeah, someone will read that, and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it happens, yeah. Some, sometimes what we mm, see as our message reaches someone. And this someone, mm, I don't know whether he or she becomes better. Maybe, yeah. Because as a reader, I would say that um, when I didn't write, I just read for many years, and I was looking for some text. I was looking for words pronounced by someone. I didn't have these words inside. I had very mixed feelings about whatever, even if they were not mixed, but they were not verbalized. I had just feelings. It's uh, very, um, it may be very emotionally destructive to have uh, non-verbalized feelings. You sort of want something, but you don't know what do you want. You need some words. And then you find a text, whether it's a poem or a story or a novel, whatever. And someone has just about the same feelings. And someone just said everything that you actually wanted to say. And when you read this text, you have a very strange feeling. You do not, you don't feel grateful for that person, that this person teaches you, shows you something or whatever. You don't learn from him. You actually say, yeah, right, I think the same way, yeah, good, you are, you are good, you are good. You are just, just what I've been always feeling. <laughs> you know, someone tries, maybe sits down, you know, uh, is underfed, has a huge family, kids, and so, and works for years just to create that precious text. And you come just like that and say, yeah, I've always felt that way. So we are very arrogant as readers, and so I appreciate anyone's arrogance towards any one of us. It's just a normal thing to do because we are, first of all, readers and then writers, I guess. As ra each writer is a reader because you read your own text and you want to read it in a special way. And so you become a writer. You become a very individualized reader. Uh, in s you become such an individualized reader that you actually become a writer, eventually. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> unique, you know. Uh, so... I think that um, if, if people feel the same way, they find each other through texts, through art. If they feel differently, if they feel the opposite way, then uh, what happens is what happened to Sinyavsky when uh, a book uh, actually brought a young man to prison. Um, there is something in art. I think art is the highest form of life. Uh, of any human activity. Mm, well, I, I don't believe in, say, the equality of insects, animals, and human beings. I don't. Maybe God did create them equal, but I don't think so, no. Uh, I think that a human being is higher than animals, though I, I like animals, but still, no. Human being is some, on a different <laughs> level. In the same way, art in all forms, uh, I believe that it's the, uh, the highest and the best human activity, including the art of reading, because it's very, very similar to the art of writing. It actually, the good reading requires 
lots of energy and whatever comes with it. It's art. And same with music, painting, arts that I am incapable of uh, appreciating enough. Sort of, you know, I'm not talented uh, in any way mm, in uh, painting or composing music, but I appreciate that. I know how difficult it is. And do understand all these things. Mm. So uh, there is something in art. The better the art is, the more it has the possibilities to convey any thought, any feeling, whatever. What I mean? I mean that, for example, if I tell you that today uh, in New York area, say, 100 people died. Yeah, quite possible. Yeah, maybe 1,000. I don't know. Uh, are you impressed? No. I, I don't feel impressed. No, no way. I'm not impressed. But if I tell one story about anyone dying, even, say, of old age, in one's own bed, surrounded by, I don't know, uh, weeping grandchildren, but if I tell you this story in such a way that moves you, you will never forget that. And of course, any one of you knows one story that is told by someone else about this similar thing that happens. So. Uh, what I mean to, to make the long speech short is in order to, uh, to send any information at all, however important it is, life or death is the most important thing, you need art because it's the way of directing, sending this information and impressing you. If uh, a book is boring, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You, you know very well what is going on in the world. And uh, you sort of don't react, because it's impossible for our nervous system to react adequately to whatever happens in the world. We are just, we're protected by our nervous system in a certain way. We concentrate on some issues, we put aside other issues, and so on. Art is a vehicle, is an instrument through which these things are mm, released and brought to you, me, whoever. So art has to be good. It has to be art. It, uh, art has to be art and not just some kind of information or text put together. Otherwise, it just won't work. And um, in, this, in this way, um, I think that a writer should rather concentrate his or her efforts on creating good art. Politics comes always. It does. It's everywhere. It's in the air. And then whatever you think politics is, you may think that uh, whatever you do is political. Yeah, maybe. Some uh, things are more important th than others. You choose. Uh, but you, you already made your choice. Your whole life is making choices. But when you did make this choice, and you're doing it constantly, then you have to do something with it. Because you cannot just you know, run in the street and shouting, people, what's going on? People are dying. There are horrible things going around. Yeah, everyone knows. Already, yeah. We are adults. But if you find the way to do that, then it works, suddenly. And uh, you know, forgetting that we are writers because we're just readers, as I said. Uh, you know how it works. How how it affected you? Whatever you read about, whatever your choice. However, it affected me, and so on. So uh, I think that art is the most important thing. It's just you know the the the, mo the acme of whatever everything you choose. Politics, fine. If we were discussing something else, same thing. Thanks.
Thank you. Uh, we agreed we'd go to David Reef next. Um, David Reef, uh, as you no doubt know, is is uh, a nonfiction writer, an essayist. He has published books, two books on Miami, uh, one of which is about the situation of the Cuban exiles in Miami, a book on Los Angeles, and currently, and perhaps most interestingly in terms of our concern here, has been spending a good deal of time in Bosnia and Sarajevo and is working on a book which he tells me uh, should be out by February. So, uh, David Reef. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure what I, as a nonfiction writer, a person who, who tries to the extent that I can to, to reproduce the things people tell me rather than, than dream up stories, have to contribute to this. But I suppose I want to say a couple of things. The first is obviously that when you say, is writing enough, you are reproducing an idea that probably goes back at least to the romantics about artists as art as the best thing, as Tatiana says, or artists as the unacknowledged legislators of the human species. The idea that artists have some kind of special purchase on truth, and when art is done properly, it will be true in this construction of, of the idea of the artist that, that uh, people can lie, but, but art in some way cannot. And uh, is, this is obviously a very powerful idea and is obviously an idea that is very important to artists. It's an idea that makes, has helped good artists do all the unpleasant and difficult things in their lives that allow them to make art. And so, even though I myself am slightly disposed to think that it's a fiction, it's a fiction that I'm quite unwilling to attack because of what it helps produce. Um, that is to say that uh, writing is a ridiculous activity. You, you sit in this little room by yourself and after a while you start to smell and your back hurts and you can't figure out your way out of a particular sentence and that's a, a very nasty way to live a life, however glorious <laughs> its results may be. And so I, I, if one likes to think that one is indeed the unacknowledged legislator of the human species, well, that seems like a fair payment. Um, and I also think that there is some truth to it because it is the case that the, if you go back far enough, you will stop caring about political events, wars, uh, dynasties, uh, the, the, the things that were important in the age. And yet you may still care, obviously, about the art. I don't think, Brayton quoted uh, Lao Tse, I don't think the dynasty in question is that important to people even in China, let alone here, whereas people still do read Lao Tse. And that means something. That is the paradox, that, that the artist, in some sense, is, in, is least important in his or her own time, at least if they're decent times, and more and more important as the things that were important in that time recede. And that is one of the paradoxes of, of making art. But I, I suppose that I don't believe if art 
is the truth, that it will set you free. And I suppose the last two years, which I've spent in Bosnia, rather persuade me of this, more even than I was persuaded before. Uh, I think that one thing we, we should be clear about is that the political opinions of artists have not historically be any, been proven to be any sounder than the political opinions of anyone else. Indeed, you might make the case that they've been proven to be a little more unsound than those of other people, artists who d feel um, that they have some authority to speak on all matters, because obviously if you're writing a novel or if you're writing a book, you, you can do what you want. It's your pieces of paper to scroll on as you please and perhaps that almost physical experience or psychological permission permits you to then say that you you really should have a very important opinion about the Vietnam War or whatever else you happen to be deciding to give an opinion about whereas in fact you may very well have no information no special knowledge indeed nothing that particularly makes your opinions any more meritorious than anyone else's. What you have, of course, in this society of celebrity is, if you're lucky, your fame. But, but that's not the same thing at all. Uh, the, at least not yet. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the other thing I want to say is that a lot of artists have served a lot of extremely terrible causes and served those causes well with their art. The Bosnian Serb revolution, if you want to call it that, was largely made by intellectuals, uh, professors, artists, writers. Uh, Dr. Karadzic is, is a poet. His uh, whatever grandfather was the great reformer of the Serbian language. Uh, so I myself tend to think that, that, that art is a separate category, but, the, but when we mix it into political life, we should judge the, pol the, the artist's politics in terms of politics and not in terms of what we think of the, the artist's art. A great artist could also have great politics or do great political things. That's, that's fair enough, but I, I don't think there's any particular causal link between them. I also don't think that the truth sets you free, and uh, I will end with these, a little story about Bosnia. When the Bosnian War began, I think a lot of people in Western Europe and North America, certainly I can't speak for any other parts of the world, had the idea that if only the information about the genocide in Bosnia could be got out, that it would stop. You can say this is a very naive, privileged set of assumptions, but, but they were nonetheless uh, very strongly held by a lot of people. And uh, partly it was a, a certain mythologizing of the experience of the, the, the destruction of European Jewry in the Second World War, where, where a lot of people on, all over the world said, well, if only we'd known, uh, as if the knowledge in itself would have prevented what happened. Uh, and in any case, those of us who were writing about the war went off to it, in particular 
went to Sarajevo with the idea that if we just told this story well enough, if we just told it properly, if we just got across with words, or in the case of the TV people and images, uh, the, the reality of, of this thing, that if we, just, if we just made people understand how horrible it is, they would do something about it. It would stop. And in that, we, largely speaking, failed. We didn't stop it because the truth doesn't set you free, at least in this collective sense of political sense that I'm talking about, uh, when great powers don't also want to set you free. And in the case of Bosnia, uh, most of the great powers involved, certainly the, the British, the French, and the Russians, and, and largely speaking the United States as well, did not want the things to be done in Bosnia that should have been done in Bosnia. And so year in and year out, the images of these camps and, and of this genocide of this little European minority, the Bosnian Muslims, was broadcast, and I think ably and accurately reported, and nobody did anything. And uh, I'm afraid that I think that's what happens when, when writers stop aspiring to the divine and start thinking they can influence events. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, and now Stanley Crouch, who, again, uh, I expect does not need uh, much introduction to you. Uh, you have uh, been reading his, his writings on politics and on jazz in places such as The Village Voice and The New Republic, Harper's, uh, his book of a few years ago, Notes of a Hanging Judge, uh, collected many of his essays. He is also uh, completing his, his novel, First Snow in Kokomo, which uh, will be out in a few years, and also a uh, <laughs> endlessly receding first snow, <laughs> and, and also has uh, been working on a television miniseries on jazz. Um, so, Stanley Crouch. Yeah, I um, in lieu of a well-prepared talk, I'm going to um, give you a, a an address in a few movements. The third movement is the one I wrote first, and the first two I wrote while I was sitting up here and listening closely to my fellow panelists. Um, so here we go. The world does not shake because of violence and barbarism, but because of the idea that differences can be resolved in less brutal ways. Ours is a world given to evangelical humanism. We are much like the Spanish missionary who had his hands cut off by spiritually resistant Indians, but returned to the field even more certain that those red people were in need of the word of his God. The word is important, the written word even more important in many instances, because it allows for large things to exist in small and private packages known as books, perhaps the first computer chips. The book is also the model for home video and recording technologies. The tempo of reading is determined by the individual. The pace of learning is also individual. One mulls over lines, sentences, paragraphs, 
at a personal pace. These, are quali these qualities are imitated by the very machines that too many believe threaten the existence of books. Now, the home video functions like the book, which can be fast-forwarded instead of pages turned, or like the passage read over and over, the individual scene, speech, or angle can be repeated over and over at one's whim or for one's instruction. The CD player works the same way, allowing for jumps forward or backwards, even programming a passage so that it will be repeated to one's satisfaction. Since the book is the model for all of this, we should see its importance. It is the personal relationship to information that makes the book important. In silence, one reads, hearing internally as many voices as the book provides. The book is held close to the face, which Walkman headphones simulate. That closeness is private a privacy of recognition, instruction, and entertainment. The book is essential to a vital and broad inner life. It is precise and ambiguous at the same time. That is the power of the well-used word and of, the, and of the orchestration of words that produces the book. It is the job of the writer to maintain the fact that the destiny of our modern world is as much about the quality and variety of our books as it is about anything else. Part two. Writing is always enough if one actually writes. I say this because there's far too much mud served up as writing in our time, which is, like all times, the story of arguments. Ours is a time in which many of the arguments that affect us most deeply are about whether or not we will accept suffering as a commodity or submit to those who claim a right to special privileges because of a heritage of suffering. These things are true in America, because our Christian heritage, no matter our actual religious feeling, has connected with our democratic ambitions for a vision in which change is ever possible and good can overwhelm bad, even in the heart itself. <coughs> the story of St. Paul is always behind everything. As members of the most important democracy in the world, we surely believe that greatness can come from anywhere. And our popular culture still represents entree into the gold rush tradition that made the rags riches American tale as true as the sunrise. The gold rush tradition is very important to us because we Americans attach great symbolic significance to materialism. A man or, or a woman is as good as what he or she gets, either through discovery of precious metals and liquids or through invention of new technologies or novel entertainments. Numerous Americans have entered the gold rush tradition, shifting suddenly their social position, arriving in different economic columns, and learning the ways of privilege that come with the celebrity of wealth. This is the truest American dream, the fulcrum that moves the national soul. What writers have to do, it seems to me now, is challenge the combination of cowardice and entitlement that moves against the equally American idea of fair play that was once projected through the national pastimes of competitive sports, where one had to learn how to handle victory and defeat, where we saw how quickly youth disappeared and how long the wounds of harsh contact lasted. Now athletes act like hooligans or brats, like hooligan brats or hired thugs to cripple the competition and whine if they don't get enough endorsements. We accept this behavior in the same way we accept uh, obnoxiousness, from, obnoxiousness from our spoiled children, pretending that we can avoid the difficulties of confronting anarchic arrogance, the greatest threat to our system of life and thought. We also accept this from our minorities and from those who have complaints that are connected to their erotic plumbing. This is not to say that injustice should be ignored or that ours is not always the task of standing tall when we recognize 
and the fate of the other a reduction of our democratic goals. I'm after the sort of corruption that becomes with employment, with the possibility of entering the smoke-filled room, with hustling purported pains that we are supposed to accept as facts if the argument itself is consistent, regardless of how removed from actual experience those ideas might be. This is a hard task for intellectuals in an innovative culture. No one wants to be stuck with the old machines to enter the computer world with an abacus. But we have to move through assertions of special treatment and try to return our culture to its sense of fairness, however much that sense was always stained by the lowdown efforts of those given to corruption, folly, and mediocrity. If we use everything we know and hold it up to the oldest beacons, those that beam from the lighthouse of the human soul, we will accept the tragic optimism so central to sensible engagement in a culture is given to mutation as ours. We will face the fact that democracy is always under assault, that pollutants are always going to be dropped into the national bloodstream, and that someone will always accept a bribe and look the other way. But our job is to look and assess. If we do, this in, do that in this time, look as severely as a coach whose sentiment has to be set aside if he was to truly do his job, then writing will definitely be enough. Now, so here's the last part, part three. On the international plane, as with our domestic situation, we're being asked again to, to address perhaps the fundamental question facing all civilizations, which is defining the differences between uses of violence. This is the central issue of the American Western. The Western is about the law, its fairness, or its corruption. In the, Amer in, in the American Western, we see, we see that violence is used either to protect democratic freedom or impose the totalitarian control that is actually an order of anarchic whimsy. The best Western writers desentimentalize law enforcement, youth, blue-collar cowpokes, and owners of large ranches. Now, to close out, I will, I will quote from one of my favorite Western lines, uh, and I think this is quite applicable to what's going on in America today. Uh, in Johnny Guitar, this handsome young fellow named Turkey, perfect name, is, is duped into, well, not really duped. He helps rob a bank in which a number of people are killed. He's wounded in the process of trying to escape and makes his way back to Joan Crawford's uh, saloon where, he's, where he hides. When Joan Crawford comes down the stairs, she sees him as the lynch mob is wandering around in the streets and says, get this guy out of here. John Carradine, the, the, the very sympathetic cook, says to her, but Vienna, he's only a boy. To which she answers, boys who play with guns have to be prepared to die like men. Thank you. <laughs> kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit among ourselves, and then we'll open, uh, open it to all of you. Um, anybody else want to start? No, so go ahead. We'll open to all you. But actually, I just wanted to—I actually wanted to ask David a question um, specifically about uh, 
thinking more about Bosnia, but this comes back to what I was talking about, about Algeria and about Salman Rushdie and so forth, um, where on the, one, the paradox is that on the one hand, uh, writing itself, or, or that nationalism is based very much in this intelligent, the kind of Serbian, uh, Bosnian-Serbian, or other sorts of nationalism are often based in, uh, they start out with people who uh, write dictionaries, I mean, in the 19th century, and, and, uh, and their children become poets and, and uh, modulate in, those in the words that those dictionaries uh, put together and, and before you know it those and the children of those poets become killers. Um, and a killing for something that wasn't even there uh, you know a century ago, an idea that wasn't there. Uh, so on the one hand you have that kind of threat, but on the other hand you have, I mean ideally in, at least in the in the fantasy of what Sarajevo was about was a place where uh, where you could have a multiplicity. Of, of those languages and those writers and so forth, and so it's. Uh, I'm not exactly clear where this where the question is here, but I'm I'm kind of worming around in this. Uh, in, in in what writer what we as writers as members of Penn, but also as just as readers also uh, have at stake in, in in a place like Bosnia. Well, but uh, well, I would say that what the stake that you have in Bosnia is a citizen's stake. I wouldn't say it was a writer's stake. I mean, well, I don't know that. You, I mean, I don't know. I've spent you know a great deal of time and at some risk anyway living with the Bosnians and trying to to publicize their cause. But I never thought I was doing it with an idea that readers could be somehow um, have a better time or or even or even to put it more grandly. That the the fate of reading was wrapped up in in the fate of of uh, of Bosnia because I I think this is to be candid a very modern and also very optimistic construction of what writing is as if writing were inherently democratic or as if writing or writers good writing I'm talking about I'm not just talking about bad writing stood automatically on the side of the cause. Of is a very good example, one of the few, of a, of a society that, at least for a certain amount of time, managed to be tolerant of this quite uh, complicated society. Uh, you know, and I, my view about that is that was the interest of, that should be the interest of people in keeping the Bosnian ideal alive and in supporting it rather than, uh, that's what makes it different from a lot of other places in the world where people are suffering. After all, people are suffering all over the place. There's nothing particularly privileged about Bosnian suffering or about Sarajevo suffering. It's what Sarajevo stood for. But I don't think it stood for writing. It, frankly, if anyone stands for writing, it's the Serb side, which is much more involved with the insistence on culture, the insistence on the on language, on on uh, on really an obsessive concern with culture. Uh, there are interesting cultural. There's an interesting cultural life in Sarajevo, but that wasn't the fundamental idea there. The fundamental idea there was tolerance, and so I I suppose I'm not I'm just not persuaded by the idea that 
the Rushdie case, the, the, the plight of Sarajevo and the artist vocation can be quite so neatly packaged this way. I mean, the real point here, the real point about Sarajevo was about pluralism and democracy. And I don't think those are two categories that apply to a lot of good artists. They apply to some, but they don't apply to others. A lot of artists believe in utter hierarchy and, uh, and you know, in most sort of, in terms of their art and in terms of their views of art, the most old-fashioned sort of social Darwinist notions, whatever they believe as private citizens. Yeah, but I, I, I think you're right, David, but it seems to me that the, um, that there's a fundamental cynicism that one has to have about uh, vocations regardless of where they arrive. And I think that the uh, being, that was what I meant about the Western, is that wild as that might seem, I mean the Western doesn't, doesn't say that because somebody's a sheriff, he or she is good, or because somebody worked hard to build a big ranch, he or she is good, or it's some, because somebody has a, a beautiful smile and a certain kind of charisma who carries a gun and is a nice, it seems to be a, 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 a guy who had, doesn't have respect for too much uh, to, for, for, for stuffiness, isn't necessarily a murderer. So I mean, it's that I think that it's the, uh, uh, that the problem that we have is, it seems to me, how to address the, the things that are central to a democratic vision and perhaps achieve what uh, one guy claimed that Ralph Ellison was looking for, which he, which he called democratic narrative. That is a, a vision of human life rich enough to accept variousness as something other than a set of threats to one's own identity or existence. And I think that we, that what I meant about the, the destiny of the world is, is connected to the quality and variety of its books is that I think that, that those particular conceptions like democracy, like pluralism, et cetera, that they enliven the, 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 the sensibilities that will, that will stand up against something like the destruction of Sarajevo. See, I, don't, I think that there are always many, many fine books, at least if you're coming from a literate civil, civilization like ours, or what people claim used to be a literate civilization like ours, uh, that there are many, many books beneath your get, behind your getting on a plane and going to Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. Now, every one you read doesn't, wasn't going to take you there, and every writer that you might say is good is not going to inspire you to go there. But there are many books that you've read that create the kind of person that you are and the things that you agree with that are on the pages of writers whom you cherish a certain way, who to you, who to you and to anybody else who's ever involved in what they consider a moral, cultural, or political struggle, you know, for right, uh, is about. And I think that, uh, you know, the majority of writers, like the majority of everybody else, uh, are not good. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I mean, every, every editor in New York knows that. You know, I mean, the, the, the worst thing any writer in New York, worst, one of your worst experiences, you know, is when somebody says, hi, David, I'm a writer, too. You know what yeah. the next thing is going to be. Would you read my manuscript? And then, 
<laughs> you know, the problem I have with that is I. This is this assumes that art has moved onto the side of democracy. I mean, if you look at the past, you see a lot of art that wasn't democratic. A lot of the art I care about isn't democratic, from the past. A lot of the art I care about is filled with attitudes I despise. And but caring about a lot of art is democratic. Yeah, but but you want to, as a citizen, I, you know, yes, if you want to say that art, caring about art is by definition uh, something about, makes you by definition more open to the democratic impulse, all I can say is I hope you're right, but, but mm. uh, it would be, a, I think, a radical transformation of human experience. I, but my, I, I was going to say, caring about a lot of art is, is what... Uh, no, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that, because I, I, would, I would take David's argument but further even say that the presence or the absence of culture doesn't seem to have very much of an incidence on atrocities that may or may not be committed. After all, could one imagine a more cultivated cultured country than, say, Germany during the 1930s, yes. where millions of people probably had access to music and to visual arts and to writing and to very good philosophy, and didn't seem to have made much of a difference. But uh, I would agree with David there. I don't think uh, art is of itself a vector of democracy, although it would certainly be one of the prerequisites to the extent that if it conveys or if it is a vehicle for an extending awareness, there is at least a ground being laid that hopefully could be built upon. I mean, I'm still naive enough to believe that at least uh, ethical uh, awareness uh, is to some extent predicated upon just basic expansion of consciousness. The one doesn't necessarily lead to the other, but at least one cannot exist without the other. But I think to come back to the example that we're using here, Sarajevo, it's, it's quite fascinating from many points of view. There's a kind of a selectiveness about it, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that, you know, I take the point that you made that what was at stake was, in fact, Sarajevo as an example of what we all will become, hopefully, if we want to survive in a future century that is profoundly mixed in multicultural societies. Yet, of course, this is not the real reason why most of the people in the West who are concerned about what's happening in Sarajevo were concerned. In France or in, uh, or in Europe in general, all kinds of other motives were obviously let loose by the conflict in ex-Yugoslavia. And the way many of the intellectuals and the writers interpreted this had little to do with what you were saying there just now. It was the fact that it was two hours away from the heart of Europe, for instance. Somebody made the interesting remark recently, why do we know so little and do we speak so little about what's happening in Kabul, which is also being martyrized at the moment? Is it perhaps because Kabul is not two hours away from the heart of Europe, or could it be that Kabul is not white, for instance? I mean, it's perhaps pushing it a bit far, I'm quoting. Um, and I think that well, one of the things that worries me about Sarajevo, I'm leaving totally aside for the time being the objective facts of what happened and the atrocities that were committed, which is condemnable, and that's something else. I'm talking about now what we're talking about tonight, the incidence of, say, intellectual discourse or reporting or reflection through art upon what's happening there, is that in a sense, 
we've not been more, and that perhaps you would agree with David, not been more far-sighted or more complete in our attempts to, to present the totality of what was going on there and what was going on around there. One thing that strikes me, for instance, is that um, we tend to equate the fact of getting a lot of news with getting more news. You know, we're exposed to much material, but in fact, we tend to perhaps forget more easily than we used to do in the old days that we're getting very limited or very biased material, or at least large, large sectors or large, uh, large uh, dimensions of what perhaps is also taking place, not only in Sarajevo, but elsewhere in that whole area, is being occulted by the fact of getting a lot of exposure on a specific area. Um, it, it would be interesting, I'd be very interested to know, for instance, as completely as possible, what is it that motivated all the actors who were involved in the crisis, in the tragedy that's taking place around, around Sarajevo. Certainly we cannot just move from the premise that this is just barbarism let loose. Same thing is true of Rwanda and Burundi at the moment. It can't just be blind, massive, cannibalistic barbarism. There must Why be something not? else. Why can't it be that? Because I don't know of any society anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, that uh, would manifest so primary at the exclusion of nearly anything else, that particular part of its makeup. I think it's present in all of us. But I don't know, I don't know, of, any, I don't know of any example where, well, that may be the most important element of what's happening, but certainly there must be other reasons, and I would like to know about these other reasons. How do people explain their own barbarism to themselves then? I would they like don't to know explain about because it's, it's included in the package. Right. They don't explain. These are the, the people uh, who are, you know, no, who are don't cannibals. They don't explain anything at all to themselves. And you say you don't know that society. You know, uh, Russia has been this society for centuries, and especially for the last 80 years. Mm. And many people from Russia, while millions of emigres, have been screaming loudly mm -hmm. for 30, 40 years that what is going on in Russia is just unbelievably horrible, and no one listen no one as late as um 1946 47 i forgot the exact date just right after the war in few years after the war um someone came from russia and he wrote a book um, it was in france he wrote a book about the horrors of uh, russian gulag and no one listened to him and the mm. french communists they actually sued this person and they nearly destroyed him you know who am i talking about yes. Uh, it, it was a co-celebre, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, no one listened to him. And it mm -hmm. took another 20 years for Solzhenitsyn to come out with his Gulag story. Mm -hmm. And it worked, but for a while, because mm -hmm. people are not interested in that anymore. Mm -hmm. They know, yeah, there was something like that. Yeah, millions of people were killed. How many? Solzhenitsyn estimates the number of people killed in Russia um, as 60 million. This figure, it doesn't impress people because, well, 60, 50, 40, oh, who cares, you know, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Mm. Because large numbers, they don't work, they stop working. But this is all real. Mm. And it happened every day and every single second. And if you just sit down and read about these horrors, mm -hmm. really read into them, 
uh, he won't be the same person anymore. But people still manage to say, oh, it's boring. You know, they mm -hmm. yawn and they put it aside. Mm -hmm. They do. Maybe Solzhenitsyn is not good enough as a writer. What do I mean? I don't mean that he's a bad writer. Uh, he r wrote very good books and very bad books, very poorly written books. But uh, what is a good writer, it's impossible to explain. Someone who has the power, uh, the superpower, to um, influence the right people at the right moment with the right thing. Mm. If he misses that, that's it, then he's not a good writer. Because it's, is, if something works after, say, 1,000, 2,000 years, then this person is a good writer because human nature is more or less the same, mm -hmm. no? both good and bad. You cannot say that human being is a good being. No, both good and bad. But it still, it works, it affects your, mm, it's, you know, you respond to it. You respond to whatever was written 3,000 years ago. But you say, do not respond to whatever was written 15 years ago. Mm. It's just, it's outdated, it's, 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 it's expired. Because uh, it may have worked for a certain while, mm. but uh, it needs time to find out whether this writer is, well, good enough. There are different, uh, I guess, stages of what is being good, and we can discuss it forever. But still, um, Solzhenitsyn, with his Gulag thing, because it's three thick volumes, worked for a while. Now he doesn't. But it looks like everything is written. It is there. It tells a lot about human nature and what people are capable of doing. Mm. And believe me, it was much worse than Bosnia. Just much, 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 much worse. And it lasted every year, as I said. Uh, such writers as Bernard Shaw came to Soviet Union in 1937, when there were more people killed in one year than, well, I guess, seven million, just in one year. Just like that. They grabbed people on the streets and just destroyed them after torturing. Just after torture, it was the year when the tortures were um, introduced. Before that, they thought it's enough to, to kill you, but then, you know, the appetite mm. just comes. In eating. Uh, yeah, in eating. So it did come. And then, mm. uh, why did it stop? Because you cannot eat all the time. You get tired, you relax, you know, become lazy, you're full. So they stopped eating, but it was pure cannibalism. And Bernard Shaw liked what he saw. He liked to, he wanted to believe what was told to him. Though I don't think he was stupid in any way. He just had his own idealistic views of what human nature is, you know. These people look poor, these people look hungry, everything looks dirty, everything is sort of strange because you're restricted in all your movements. But it's fine because they are on the way of improving human nature. And this is the most dangerous idea at all. Because we are just, Here's the result of the experiment that happened in our country, one-sixth of the globe, right? And uh, it happened for 80 years, and no one actually cared just the way it deserved to be cared. And now you, you have Bosnia, you have Kabul, you have whatever, you have lots of local problems. Pff, well, of course no one, <laughs> no one, you I, know. I, 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 don't yep. think that's, I don't think that's it. I think it's that people don't, you know, people don't want to pay the tab. The tab is blood. That's what the tab is. I mean, if you, you know what I mean, the, that's the deal. I mean, if you, if people wanted to stop that in Russia, people would have had, essentially, to go to war with Russia. And they didn't want to do that. It didn't have anything to do, I mean, it's just like. Yeah, and why? What, no, but, no, but what I'm saying. Problems at home, too. No, yeah. you know, but also, what I mean is that, see, what it takes, I mean, it's, well, that's what I meant about the idea 
that we always have to define the meaning of violence. Because, see, you're never going to talk a Kim Il-sung, an Adolf Hitler, a Stalin, a Mao, Castro, you're not going to talk those people into being nice people. No. That's not what you're going to do. Oh, no. So when, you know, it's just like don't it, even try. It's just like what happens at school it's on schoolyards. You know, kids decide whether they're going to pick up a stick and hit a bully in the head every day until he decides, I don't want to bother you. I want to bother him. Or they <laughs> give the bully a quarter every day and he leaves them alone, except if he decides to up the price. Now, the fact of the way the world works is that. And what happens is, you know, it's just like what happened with Jews in Europe. Other European countries were not willing to pay the tab in blood that they would have had to pay to deal with Adolf Hitler. People were not willing to pay the tab to deal with Stalin or any of the people who came after him. They weren't willing to pay the tab with the Chinese. The tab is a big tab. A lot of people have to die to change those kind of people. Now, the thing is, civilization is about the fact that people are essentially savage, left to their own devices. Anybody who's reared any children knows that. I mean, you can't, I, I mean, any one, one hour in kindergarten will show you what true human nature is. The big ones take what they want if you let them get away with it. The little ones cower, and the ones in the middle kind of try to ingratiate the big ones and say, not me, them. Now, you know, that's the way people really are. And we can sit up and talk all kind of this or that, that's the way people are. Now, what happens is you eventually, if you're lucky, you, you, you break through that and create another code of addressing the world, which is, which, is what, which is what civilization is about, which is underlaid by some kind of vision of hospitality, and which in the, in the evangelical idea of humanism that we have tends to, to, to try to remove the, 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 the ever-present specter of xenophobia. Now, the thing is, this will, this happens, you know, there's an ebb and it, there's an ebb and a flow to it. I mean, it's, sometimes people are willing to do it, sometimes they aren't. We're in a period where most people are so narcissistic, they don't want to pay for anything, except for their own personal entertainment. I mean, the idea that the United States can have less than 20 guys killed in Somalia and then run back to the United States. Yeah. Or some guys could kill one guy on television and wave some AK-47s, and Clinton turns a troop ship around from Haiti, which has had no serious record of military engagement since Toussaint uh, Louverture. I mean, I mean, do, 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 I mean, does Clinton think we'd be like Napoleon's troops when they went down to Haiti? No. But the thing about it is Clinton can't sell that tab of blood to the United States. People get on television and they go, oh, 20 American troops were killed. Let's get out of there. You know? Now the thing is, that's where we are right now. We, it, and, and, the, and the fate, you, I mean, Paul Muni and, and uh, informed Jews met in places like Madison Square Garden, 1938-39, and they told America, this is what's going on. People did like this. And again, look at the, this the Somalia story. Actually, what they did, they showed a good story on the TV. It was pretty horrible because when you see one killed, just exactly how it is done and what happens after death, what kind of you know, humiliation of his former dignity because he now doesn't exist, it's really horrible. But 
people yeah, it, actually it, it, see. You know, if they just write in the newspaper, well, 20 people are killed, it wouldn't impress people the way it did when it was shown on the TV. It was a, you know, a good show. I'm sorry to just to even pronounce these words, but it was made as a good show. It, it, was, it, it was live. Everyone wants everything live as if it's important. Okay, it happened five minutes ago, so what? It was live and it was pretty horrible and uh, it was disgusting, but um, uh, everyone sort of overreacted. What about other people killed in other places for other causes? You know, as good as this one seemed to be, it worked. It was a good story told. But there was, there was no good story. Uh, David, there were some stories told about uh, Bosnia or just this former Yugoslavia, because now everything shifted, uh, the um, attention shifted to Bosnia, and before that it was Croatia, now everyone forgot about that, and of course um, people prefer not to um, remember what uh, Croatians did during the war to Serbs, and what Bosnians, uh, whoever they are, did to both of them 500 years ago, which is like yesterday in Yugoslavia and in other parts of the world. It, you cannot underestimate the um, folklore, sort of, because liturgy is based on that folklore, it becomes the most important thing. Um, and uh, these stories that were told in a proper way, they found their reader, yeah, the viewer. They worked. You know, this little girl who was shown, who was uh, shot, and then they couldn't take her out of the country. Eventually they did, and so attention was drawn to what happens to children and so on. And this, this diary of this Zlata, it was supposed to be a good story. It's, it, yeah, it's a poorly written thing. It's just a poorly written thing. That's why it doesn't do it. It's a secondary literature. But it worked because everyone created, you know, sort of promotional success in advance. Of course, if you just read this story, you put it aside. It doesn't work. But it was, the attention was created as if it w if could work. It didn't. And you know very well. Because it's secondary literature. Oh, as, as if, as if you know, suffering becomes, uh, well, in this case, there was no suffering, I guess. It's just, you know. Others suffered. She wrote, others suffered, but, well, <laughs> she's fine. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd still, the notion somehow that art will out or quality will out, I, I, I don't see the historical basis for this. A lot of the, for example, if you were talking about quality, a lot of the music that most moves the Serb irregular fighters I think even by the standards of Bosnia is quite mediocre. Uh, it nonetheless succeeds in the quite practical sense that it motivates people to kill and to die. That to, me, that to me is a success. I don't see what its merits as uh, music or indeed the or, or as lyrics really have to do with this. It manages all kinds of terrible things move people. The notion that only good things move people I just, I, I, no, I, 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 I don't think that's really the, the I don't think that's, that's really the issue. When I was saying earlier that, that there are a lot of quality books behind anybody's action, I'm not talking about whether they're just, uh, whether they're novels or plays or poems or something. I'm saying that, that, that a certain, a certain high-minded quality of, of, of democratic thought, wherever it's arrived, however it arrives on the page, is what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm not, 
I mean, I'm, I'm the last person who would believe that any particular category of engagement is automatically going to ennoble the person who's there. I mean, anybody who's read 15 pages of serious history written by anybody knows better than that. I mean, uh, that's why, uh, as I always say, that you know, folly, corruption, and mediocrity are the central enemies of any kind of society, and they arrive over and over. I think the problem that we're talking about is, is what the, di what the distance is between what you were talking about earlier, which that is between the, the, the recognition of a problem and the action that takes place to, re to, to resolve it. Now, in the case of a place like Sarajevo, I mean, Milosevic, those kind of people, that are, we know what they're like. You, you know, you know had, at the very beginning, when David and I talked about this, at the very beginning, had just an hour videotape of the Gulf War been sent over there and said, now, you do see what this is. Now, do you want some of this on your plate? Then I think we would have had a conversation would have began much earlier. Because you don't talk to, see, the thing is, you don't talk to people like that. You pretend publicly to talk to them, and privately you do what, what people do when they, you know, and when they're dealing with serious business, which is you say, look, if you don't stop this, we're going to send planes and troops and we're going to put a foot deep in your ass. And then you get on television and you say, yes, well, after great deliberation, we <laughs> came to the conclusion that it would be so and so. But that's what really happened. Because you can't talk to those kind of people. I mean, it's a very naive idea that you can. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean whether we look at our, at, at our own civil rights movement. The reason the South changed wasn't because people talked to them. You know what I mean? At, at, at Little Rock, I mean, we, we, people are very upset now about the idea of, of Sharon Pratt Kelly's asking for the National Guard to come into Washington, D.C. to help deal with the crime problem. People said, well, we'll have fascism. There were no outcries of that in 1956 when, when Eisenhower sent the National Guard to Central High School because everybody knew what those kids were dealing with every day. They were dealing with people who were not going to be talked into going home to stop and stop throwing bricks and bottles and so on. So with those kids trying to go to school, now that's the way it is. Now what we have to hope always is that the grand ideas will maintain their evolving position after the smoke clears, because you're going to have the killing. The killing is part of human history. Now the thing is, so whatever two when two armies meet, when people die, when people commit the kind of barbaric actions that they do under the intensity of warfare, the bloodlust that comes out in some people, the, 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 the arrogant uh, sacrifice of troops that comes out when, when you have bad leaders, uh, the accidents where people are killed who are on your side, or too many people who are not combatants are killed on the other side, all of that's going to go down if you have a war. Now the question is, when the bullets stop flying and the smoke clears, what do you have after that? I would suggest this. If we look at World War II, all of the armies fighting Hitler, somebody did the worst kind of stuff you could do. But we do know one thing, that the kind of, the kind of violence that was used against somebody like a, a, an institution like the Third Reich begat, I think, a richer world than, than would have existed had the very same kind of violence that was being used by the Nazis been successful. 
And I think that that's the central fact that we have to address, and it seems to be something that people don't like to look at. They like to think that civilization means we're not going to act like that anymore. I don't think that's what civilization means at all. Stanley, let me uh, just interrupt. <laughs> um, A fan. In, in, Stanley word, in Stanley's words, not us, uh, uh, them. And uh, so I just wanted to open it a little bit uh, for a few minutes to questions from the floor and, and uh, see whether this has been resonant. And if you would like to talk, uh, please go to the microphones and I'll, this is apparently, this is being taped for Penn's archive, so we'd like people to come to the microphones. Um, Arthur, if you want, just come to the microphone there. I expect we'll, we'll, we'll talk for another 10 or, or 10 minutes or so. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't particularly agree with Mr. Crouch about <coughs> violence because um, his, his examples like uh, with Haiti, I think the reason that Mr. Clinton didn't follow through on his campaign promises has more to do with the fact of the people that who he has to serve. In other words, Aristide was, was leading towards a more equitable society economically. And I think that uh, Mr. Clinton masters don't want that. And, and I also think that your example with the Gulf War, I think that the Gulf War only served uh, the purposes of, of the, uh, the royalty in Kuwait and the, and the people whose banks their, their money is in because uh, in the six months after the Gulf War, which I don't consider a war because the, the, the army was eating every other day, okay. the, the, uh, there were like 40,000 children under the age of six that died as a result of our destruction over there, uh, you know, in, in Iraq, not in, not in Kuwait, which was putatively the reason that we went over there. I think it was all about oil. And I think that once you start saying, well, uh, there, there's going to be blood spilled and everything, I think that you set up a, a situation where then, then you've got to start listening to, to, uh, to, to the rhetoric okay. that went on yeah. about, uh, about the Cold War. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just generally, by the way, uh, let's try in general, I appreciate your comments, but, but to, to uh, focus on the writer, some of the issues of the writing and so forth, and 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 uh, and although we ourselves up here have been doing a good deal of talking about politics, also I, I think what what's special about this evening is is, is well, the writing context. A question to all the uh, to the participants: Isn't the writing of somebody like Leo Tolstoy, whose 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 uh, whose best writings evince the, the the kind of feelings? Of, of love towards each other. I mean, isn't that what the what uh, the great greatest writers uh, uh, that are that are also ethical people evince in us? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I can answer about Leo Tolstoy. It's sort of Russian stuff, you know. If, um, there's 94 volumes of his work, and I mean volumes, published in Russian. Maybe in English, it's less. Not all of his works are of great interest, but some of lesser interest. As a writer, as a fiction writer, he didn't especially, you know, send love messages or whatever. No. He could be extremely cruel on the one hand, especially if you read him nowadays, because the way he treated uh, freedom of women, you know, you would just faint if you read it attentively. It's 
a disaster, I mean, in terms of political correctness and what is fashionable right now. In general, it may be true, but right now it just doesn't read this way. And um, mm, on the other occasions, he just uh, had the great power to describe the world as he saw it, and it was not a um, message of kindness and love and so on. When he decided to send these messages, he started, started writing the rest of these 94 volumes. Three volumes, let's say, it's fiction. The rest of it is message of love. Do you know that, how did he get this message? Did you read these 90 volumes? And no one can, because it's so boring, this message of love. <laughs> and it actually doesn't reach people. Yeah, it's good to love each other, but it's just blah, 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 you know? It's, 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 it's just about that. Put a lion and a uh, rabbit in one cage and see what happens. Just wait for a while. Do it again, do it again. The experiment doesn't work. There, there are things, there are ways, you know, of somehow keeping together both of them. I don't know, putting the electric wire between them or doing something and here politics start. But it's fine to send uh, this message. It never reaches the, on the receiving end. There's you know, no one to get it anyway, except those who already know that. Let, let's try to keep uh, both questions and answers uh, short now. So, uh, yep. I'd like to uh, address the question of uh, what I believe the, the theme of the evening is of what uh, is the writer supposed to do if words aren't succeeding? And I'd just like to bring up the example of Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia who stopped writing and went into politics and accomplished miracles. And I was just wondering if anybody on the panel would care to uh, address the subject of what a writer might do if his words aren't succeeding in accomplishing what he would like. What, I, what I'd like to do is just take three things and then go to the panel. Uh, thank you for that. Go ahead. Uh, Mr. Breitenbach, uh, in the in the uh, I think the last <coughs> excuse me the last sentence of your um, opening remarks, you use the phrase parlor games. I think in relation to uh, United States writers and their concerns, which would be, uh, for instance, political correctness or appealing to the commercial media, in relation to what the um, concerns of a Somalian or a Yugoslavian writer would be. And I was interested in hearing a bit of exploration of that idea, and also if the other writers, particularly the American writers, uh, agree with that. Let me just take one more question, and then we'll. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm ready. Sociopathic imprinting. Uh, according to Conrad Lorenz, no, not according to Conrad Lorenz, according to uh, we, uh, has to do with uh, a brain that uh, is uh, subliminally programmed so that we're stuck with the message and the message is repeated again and again. And therefore, you writers who are imprinted with that kind of, us writers who are imprinted with that kind of uh, history, uh, have the problem but don't recognize it. So it's beyond words, is it not? <laughs> um, let me bring back to the panel the reminding the questions about 
mm -hmm. uh, hovel and about, um, or just what the writer sh should do at the moment when writing it doesn't feel like it's enough. Uh, with the example of hovel, the question about parlor games for you, Brayton. Let's start with the hovel question. Or well, I think just in general, obviously, what does the writer do if he feels that the writing is not sufficient? I don't think one can be prescriptive about that. I think in any event, one cannot be prescriptive to the writer under any circumstances. I think that we are mixing uh, models, however admirable public models or public ethics may be, uh, with the craft of actually writing. I don't think one can expect necessarily of the writer to be doing more than he's doing as a writer, and I don't think one can blame him if he does do more than as a writer. I said in my opening remarks, I believe that arrived times, there are times when writing is not enough. I think we can point at specific periods during history when this happened. And I did say, and I do believe that very strongly, that a writer is not exempt from his civic duties or his civilian duties just because of being a writer. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be more effective in other fields than he could be as a writer. Uh, I'm not going to comment upon the example of Havel. Um, I'm not sure necessarily whether he thought about miracles, <laughs> although I admire... <laughs> Frank Zappel. Beg pardon? I brought Frank Zappa over. Yes. That was a miracle. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I personally, for instance, at the point made a choice, right or wrong, uh, to, um, to go into other forms of, politi of political activity. Um, looking back upon it, I don't regret it. I'm not sure that it was the right decision. I'm not sure that I achieved more. But that was it. Uh, that's, 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 I assume that entirely. That's part of life. I, while you were talking about Havel, I was thinking of another example. I met a Russian exile writer in Paris, Eduard Limonov. Mm. Uh, mm. Yes. Yeah, that yes. was also <laughs> kind yes. of my example. Uh -huh. Yes, and I remember seeing photos of him not very long ago somewhere uh, in uh, ex-Yugoslavia shooting rifles uh, mm -hmm. in joint... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you know what, you know what, just to add to that, it is, um, he's not a bad writer as a writer, I mean mm -hmm. as a Can stylist. You describe who he is mm -hmm. uh, it's a Russian emigre um, writer, he left Russia, mm, well, 15, 20 years ago, and uh, he lived in New York, um, mm. then he moved to France later, and he, he, wrote, a, he wrote a kind of a novel, a very obscene novel, in many ways, you know, not in only in what he describes, but in the his stylistical approach and so on. He attracted lots of attention, and it's sort of Jean Genet style, mm, Jean Genet approach. And, um, oh, it was outrageous for a while, so he became popular. Mm, it's, um, it's not just exactly shocking, it's just sickening to read him, and you cannot prove that he's a disgusting person, but I feel that others disagree, and my best friends disagree. I mean, people who have just about the same, the most important uh, same political uh, beliefs and whatever, still they think that he is great because he's a good stylist, and uh, 
I don't like his style, but that's not the point. I just see he's a disgusting person. Okay. So what's he doing uh, now? Wait, never mind. He <laughs> went right now, you know, no, sort of world famous. He decided that he would rather become a Russian nationalist than some other nationalist. And so he chose the Serbian side in this Yugoslav war. And, uh, well, okay, it's up to everyone to choose because there are three sides there, and I guess everyone is involved in something really horrible. Uh, again, the question who started first, it uh, depends on uh, what, uh, what do you mean, uh, who and when. You know, 500 years ago, 50 years ago, or three years ago, it depends. Uh, but actually, he went to Yugoslavia and he started shooting people. You know, uh, before you shoot people, you can have any political opinion. And I even believe that as a writer, if you say, I take this side, no one can blame you because another one, maybe a better person, say, and I take the opposite side, what can you say? This, people, this person has one opinion, this person has an opposite opinion. But if a writer takes a rifle and just shoots people, and he was proud of what he did, and he said that he looked in this you know, binoculars, the night vision binoculars, so uh, he saw people and they didn't see where the bullets come from. I think it's absolutely sickening, and no one, whether he is, well, if he's not a soldier, he's not given you know, orders, no one has any excuse for doing that. One is not supposed to take a gun and shoot people. <laughs> there, you know, there, there should be a line should be drawn should somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, everything <laughs> is permitted. Otherwise, everything is permitted. Of course, there are marginal cases, but. Hmm. but uh, hmm. Let me just quickly. I do want to be able to just quickly take those three people, but just yes, just very rapidly about, about that. There's about the remark I made about uh, American writers' parlor games, political correctness. No, I was trying to define what I think as a total outsider would perceive the contours to be within which you operate here. Uh, and of course, it was deliberately a bit provocative. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the issues you're involved in here as writers are not important to you or important even objectively. I'm just suggesting that uh, given, well, the luck you have to live in a society where perhaps these problems are not of immediate importance to life and death. Um, they can perhaps be seen from outside as being rather futile exercises. What I would also like to add, since I'm in the, the provocation game right at the moment, uh, I tend to notice that there's very, very little real understanding from here about what's happening elsewhere in the world. And it bears out uh, Yes, yes, I do believe that. I mean, I think that, for instance, the intervention of Mr. Clinton in Somalia is an act of rather sublime stupidity. You know, I think that power makes stupid, and superpower, if I may quote a phrase, <laughs> makes America. <laughs> it's universal. It's universal. No, I think it's extremely difficult from a position, it's extremely difficult from a position of power to understand uh, the others, those who do not have the power. And I think this leads to the kind of terrible blunders that you've had or that you've seen in appreciation of what's happening elsewhere and therefore in some forms of exercise of foreign policy. But now we're opening a new can yeah, of worms. Let's not go into particles. Let's uh, fairly quickly, again, if you can limit it to two minutes uh, uh, comments from the floor and then we'll wrap up here. Go ahead. Yes, I, I hope that uh, David Reef is just speaking from deep uh, despair, which I can understand, because it would certainly uh, not 
uh, it certainly serves, uh, it would certainly not serve the cause of, uh, of democracy if the truth were not told about Bosnia. And I think that's the point. It doesn't uh, uh, seem to me uh, guarantee that if the truth is to uh, told that uh, good things will happen. But the, if the lies are told, then unfreedom will certainly triumph. In the case of David Rousset, who Mr. Uh, Tolstaya mentioned, the man who wrote the book about the concentration camps in Russia was very important. It did set in motion, I think, opposition to uh, what was going on in Russia. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I would ask the question here about the difference between art and propaganda. It seems to me there's a kind of a, a confusion going on. The propaganda, the, uh, the uh, drums that are beating, the songs that are sung, are a form of propaganda and it's a form of a lie. And it seems to me art does have to do with truth. That's perhaps an old romantic notion. But uh, that's a form of lie, and of course all totalitarian regimes have lots of, uh, many artists, or many people I should say, who uh, uh, have a, a kind of a pseudo-art, which we call propaganda, and that's different, sure. because it's a way of concealing reality, of uh, covering over things, and I think that would be worth uh, hearing from the panel about th that difference. And uh, just one point, and that is about Penn itself. Penn itself, after all, is an activist organization. So by virtue of belonging to Penn, you become an activist, you make a commitment to human rights, to freedom of speech, to the right of writers, and so forth. So that is joined together, and this isn't just any platform, it is a pen platform, and I think that makes a, an important point. Well, Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say that, uh, you know, mo most, of, most of life is about the dif distance between the uh, recognition of what one wants or should want, and how and what and what resistance, either within or without, uh, creates the time between the recognition and the action. And I think that uh, if we look at something like, say, the, the abolitionist movement in the United States, it can't. If one thing slave owners always knew is that they didn't want their slaves to read at all because they might get their hands on material that suggested that they shouldn't be on plantations working as talking livestock. I think that uh, totalitarians have always had a very, they've, had, they've bad a thousand in terms of how quickly they recognize what they don't want the population to get. I mean, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, it doesn't make any difference who the person is. They always know what, they, what you're not supposed to read. Uh, I think, though, that part of what the problem we have is is that the, 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 the inevitable dissonance that will take place because of human frailty within a situation causes writers often to just sink down into uh, ineffectual cynicism. As, for instance, if you look at somebody like from your country over there that nobody understands, uh, Winnie Mandela. I mean, her barbaric actions don't reduce one iota if she's guilty of what she was found guilty of, the rightness of, of South Africa to become democratic. If South Africa, if the South Africans sink down into another Marxist, totalitarian, brutal state as, uh, as various African countries have, that doesn't mean that colonialism was right. I think that mm -hmm. we, have, we have seen so many different, oftentimes for all of our sophistication, it seems that we often are, are very naive about how things ought to go. And I think what David was talking about, and of course he'll be able to talk about it for David, is that um, none of these things automatically lead one to the other. 
And I think that the history of American slavery will teach us that. I mean, there were many people for long before there was a Civil War who were arguing against slavery. And, and as far as books are concerned, however, whatever you think of the novel, you cannot separate Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin from what the national consciousness about slavery became in that period. So I think that there is a, is and always will be a strong relationship between the quality with which ideas that have high-mindedness are executed and what the, what the, what the eventual conflict will be, be between whatever the convention is and what the, the, the new ideas may happen to be. Let me try and just, before you answer that, just get these last two comments in because they've been, you've been standing very politely. And we appreciate it and then we, and we'll wrap up after that. So again, please keep it brief. Yeah, I have um, one, uh, I had a response to the panelists' uh, discussion which I'd just like to read and I'd appreciate the panelists' response to that. Um, I, I feel that good writing addresses a hunger in the soul it may lead to an expansion of consciousness, but this requires receptivity and a willingness to suffer the indignity of our own humanity, the grossness and evil within each human psyche. Writing may help to facilitate this process, but it is in itself not enough. It requires the active participation of the reader. This is each individual's personal responsibility, but with whether this occurs or not does not negate the need for the expression of creativity in good writing. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Uh, um, as to uh, what uh, Miss Tolstoy has said about uh, uh, when people are uh, told about the millions of uh, millions of people kept in the uh, gulags in the Soviet Union and people replying, who cares? I think the answer to that is that there's an unconscious uh, guilt factor involved, particularly on the part of Americans. I mean- Very uh, unconscious. I mean, uh, well, yeah, when an American is told, uh, told that and he responds, who cares? I think he's unconsciously rationalizing the way, the fact that his own country uh, pushed millions of Native Americans into uh, gulags called reservations and kept millions of slaves on plantations, uh, on gulags called plantations. I don't see how any normal pe person would answer who, who cares unless he was going through that kind of rationalization. Okay, thank you. Um, by way of answering some of these last comments, I just want to maybe just go through the panel and, and start with you, David. And well, again, I'm, I'm going to sing the same song I've been singing all evening. I, I think the notion that good art is good art and moral and bad art is mediocre and propagandistic <laughs> can be disproved by any number of examples. <laughs> uh, Lenny Riefenstahl is one of the greatest directors in the history of film. And she not only didn't have good opinions, she made extremely persuasive, mobilizing works of filmic genius in praise of the Nazi party. And I just find the idea that somehow the truth will out in art as in the world. I don't believe the truth will out in the world or in art necessarily. 
there are all kinds of other questions. I believe that insofar as people look at movies in 200 years, and I quite agree the verdict can't be in about works of art in, in short periods of time, I think my hunch is that those films will last. They serve terrible causes. Uh, the, the other question addressed to me, part of the same question, it was, you know, what in effect was whether it was worth it to go to Sarajevo. I mean, it's worth it to do lots of things that you lose in. Uh, the fact that you're going to lose doesn't make it not worth it. But the point is that uh, I, what I don't find helpful is illusion, uh, illusion and sentimentality. The notion that you describe the Bosnian word in terms of baby Irma instead of in terms of politics, the notion that that you believe somehow that because you're a person of goodwill that the world is full of goodwill, uh, the notion, if you like, that the truth will set you free. Stanley? Um, well, I'll say finally that uh, what I've said at the start, just to recap, I think that uh, good books are part of the destiny of the world as are bad books. And that uh, the job of a writer is to try to, to become part of, this, part of the destiny that the, that, that, that the good books provide. Uh, as a student of, of, the, of the 19th century and of, and of various intellectual responses to, to uh, American slavery, I, I see, I find it impossible to separate what people wrote and thought and argued over and over again in newspapers and pamphlets and so on from what eventually took place in the largest conflict it cost 600,000 people to get people like me off the plantation. Now of course there was a there was a schedule that the slave owners themselves were on and I think it was probably the same schedule that the Dutch were on in southern Africa. It would have been 500 years or so before they would have finally concluded that maybe we should let these people go. But it wouldn't have come as a result of them concluding that either. It would have come as a result of somebody forcing them to give that up because believe me, if you have a slave and you're used to it, it's a hard thing to give up. Now, uh, and so I, but I, and I think that, that, that we will always have these problems with human beings, I think that brutal, Violent people will always arrive someplace in the world, and they will, if they're sufficiently charismatic, they will get people behind them who are willing to die for their cause, whatever their cause happens to be. And we will always have to deal with them in exactly the same way that they always have to be dealt with. I mean, the way the Confederacy was dealt with. I mean, the Confederacy did not come to blink. Uh, uh, Robert E. Lee did not sign the surrender because Ulysses Grant talked him out of his position. You know, something like Gettysburg helped him realize that the jig was up. And uh, I think that that's part of the civil, that's part of the problem of civilization, and it's a part of the problem of civilization that will not leave us. And if I think again that writers have to, have to provide a frame, it seems to me, for understanding what Certain, at certain times the inevitable violence is about. As David and I were often talking during 
the worst parts of the crisis in Sarajevo, of what, that is, if the worst is not still to come, we don't, we, you never know. Uh, people just didn't want to do it. They essentially, to close out again, they didn't want to pay the tab. Okay. Tatiana? Yeah, just to, to round it up, mm, I don't know. Every, everyone is right, and that, that's, that's about that. But uh, we were discussing all the time about whether actually uh, human nature is good or bad, and, and the answer is that it's both. But uh, still, I would like to be to sound more optimistic because when I look back in the you know millenniums before uh, this moment, while mm, human beings are sort of becoming a little bit better because no one came and taught them not to eat each other, not to kill each other. It, the understanding of that there is something wrong in doing that came way before Christ. It's, it was not Christ who just asked them, oh, please love each other, because if actually um, his message worked, then they would stop immediately, so it, doesn't, it didn't work. But the idea was quite familiar. People um, were, well, they were civilized, uh, you know, in some societies way before uh, Christ. So um, the ideas of, well, humanism, they were already there in the humanity. And it's very, um, it's very nice that they just happen. And so there is, there is a hope, even in the future dark years, we can extend this hope. If it was possible uh, in, say, the first millennium before Christ to be good towards each other in some societies, in some places maybe it will be possible in the 21st century. Very bleak assessment. <laughs> she said she was being hopeful. Yes. <laughs> I was reminded of the old saying, everything is true at all times, but some things are more true than others from time to time. <laughs> um, I would like to thank the gentleman here who made that statement, that summing up statement, which I think is quite positive. It's quite, it was going to the heart of what we, what we were thinking about tonight. Um, maybe just a few last thoughts. Um, I think we agree, perhaps unwillingly so, but still, on the non-incidence of creative work on social reality. I'd give David that. <laughs> I'd also perhaps give him the fact that one doesn't learn from the suffering of others, maybe not even from one's own suffering. Because there's no guarantee that one not going, one's not going to inf inflict similar or other forms of suffering upon other people even if you and your people have in the past suffered a lot. Uh, but even having said that, I would still like to put in a very late plea for decency being better than abjection and not killing perhaps being better than killing. And that if we do agree with that, which is very minimalist, I think we could perhaps also conceive of the fact, and there's not a moral statement and has nothing to do with the notion of quality or not quality, or with trying to impose upon people certain standards of conduct, but I do think we can agree that writing at best can contribute to the quality of public discourse. And that's perhaps not, not, to, be, not to be left aside, even if it's only to the extent that it, it can help throw a light on the thinking that goes into the making of public decisions. We know we're not rational. We know we all have a large part of savage in us. There's no reason for not trying to dominate or to at least keep alive the alternative. 
of trying to impose some form of order, control, or enlightenment upon at least a public discourse. And then my final point would be, I don't think we should be totally despairing. We should not underestimate the subversive power of writing. I think that too has been shown under many circumstances. Dissidents, in the case of the Soviet Union and in other parts of it, may not be very constructive in creating al an alternative reality. And we know, and I agree with what you just said, it's a cyclical matter. We've been bad. We've been a little bit better at times. Let's hope we can be a little bit better again. Uh, writers may not be the ones to point to a different future or better conditions, but at least they can be quite effective under certain conditions to undermine the horrors of the systems that do exist at the present moment. So I'll put in my vote for subversion. <laughs> I think I'll leave it at that. And uh, thank you all for coming here. Uh, I don't know whether writing is enough, but this is enough talk. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.